Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I'm sure I'd get a lot of weird different answers. For example, some people may say, well, it's a type of music, isn't it? It's gospel music. Well, I've heard this thing about asking Jesus into your heart. Is that the gospel? Or some other people may say, well, isn't that what church people talk about all the time, the gospel? And there may be some people that say, I flat out really don't know what the gospel is. What is the gospel? The Lord has burned within my heart many years now, and and you guys know this if you've been around here long enough, that we as a church, we as individual Christians, we need to be so focused on the gospel. We need to live and eat and breathe and sleep and think about and meditate and preach and proclaim the gospel. We need to have the truths of the gospel so permeate our minds that we are saturated with the gospel. Not so much that we just think about the gospel, but it translates into how we actually live our lives. Does the gospel impact how we live our lives? It must affect every area of our lives. This morning, Russell Adels has shared with you his testimony And you have probably received something in the mail over the past few weeks about our new Capital Stewardship campaign. It's called Advancing the Gospel, Trusting His Provision. Advancing the Gospel, Trusting His Provision. And really what this does is it flows out of our mission statement as a church. If you're new to Emmanuel or you've been here a long time, I just want to remind us of what our mission statement is. Why do we exist as Emmanuel Baptist Church? What are we all about? Well, we talk about the three G's, not not a cell phone network. It's 4G now. We don't, it's just they all start with G. We exist to display God's glory. Number one, it's all about God's glory. Number two, we declare God's gospel And number three, we disciple for God's great commission. Glory, gospel, great commission. And wrapped up in that is this desire to advance the gospel. You see, the word advance means to move forward, to blaze a trail, to advance the gospel. And so here's what we're asking you to pray about over the next few weeks. By committing above and beyond your tithes and offerings to a three-year capital stewardship campaign to pay down the debt on our existing building, what we're in right now, that's going to free up resources to be used to do what God has called us to do as a church. We as a church are called to advance the gospel this morning. Now, when we voted back as a church in 2007, Some of you were here, some of you weren't. But back in 2007, we voted as a church to leave our former um, 
address at 1309 Sydney Avenue because we were running out of space. God led us to build this new building and to move into this new facility. And even back then in 2007, when we voted on that, we knew that we would probably have to have multiple capital campaigns to get into the building. So we had building for the harvest part one. We had building for the harvest part two. And even back then, we said we probably have to have multiple building campaigns or multiple debt reduction campaigns, multiple capital campaigns. And so let me just tell you this, even if all of the issues that had happened with our general contractor, and some of you know what I'm talking about, and if you want to come after the service and and get more information, there is a history that we've had in getting into this building. Things didn't go the way that we exactly wanted them to go with some legal issues, but even if none of that stuff had happened, if we got into this building turnkey without any issues, we would still have to do another capital fundraising campaign. And we we said that from the very beginning. And so what I'm asking us to do is, is if you've been here for a long time or you're just now coming on board to Emmanuel Baptist Church, I want to make sure that we're all moving ahead on the same page, that we all have the same vision. So here's what I'm simply asking you to do this morning, is just to pray, to begin to pray about how God would personally lead you and your family to commit over the next three years. It it all starts with prayer. And so that's all I'm asking you to do this morning is to pray. Spend time daily in prayer. Hopefully you're using the 40 days in Philippians. We as an entire church are going through this 40-day journey through the book of Philippians. It gets us in the Word. It gets us in prayer. And so I want us to, to, to spend time in prayer. And I want you to ask questions. If you have any questions of me or if you have any questions of the elders, please feel free to come and ask us any question that you want to ask us. Uh, We want to be transparent and be able to answer those questions for you. So in the next few weeks leading up to our celebration event at NJC, and by the way, April 28th, we won't be here. So if you show up here at April 28th, there'll be nobody here. The doors will be locked and there'll be signs on the door and we'll all be over at NJC. We'll be in the ballroom. We will have a worship service. There'll be a message. There'll be a wonderful meal and a neat experience and an opportunity for you to consider committing over the next three years what God would lead you to give. And so the theme is advancing the gospel, trusting his provision. Today, we're going to focus on the first aspect of that statement, advancing the gospel. The next two weeks, we're going to look at the second aspect of it. What does it mean to trust his provision? And so what I want us to do before we even start anything is to ask a basic question this morning, a question that is fundamental to who we are as Emmanuel Baptist Church, and that is simply this. What is the gospel? What's the gospel? If we're to be advancing the gospel, if we're to be declaring the gospel, what is the gospel? Well, the word itself means good news. Glorious news, great news. It's news to be announced. It's news to be broadcast. It's news to be shared. It's, it's often like what you would see on a headline, like on the Denver Post or on the Journal Advocate or, or a banner ad on Yahoo or MSN.com. It's, it's news to be announced. If you go back and look at some of the archives after World War II and you look at some of those newspapers after World War II, what did they say? Victory in Europe. War is over. They weren't giving you advice. They weren't giving you suggestions. They weren't telling you how to have a better life. They were announcing great news that the war in Europe was over. That's what the gospel is. It's a glorious announcement. It's the good news of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, what I want to do is just answer one huge question. 
And here's the question. Why is the gospel worth advancing? Why is the gospel worth sacrificing our very lives to go to the ends of the earth to share this good news, not only with people here in northeastern Colorado, but the Bogota peoples of India, the people in Moscow, Russia, those in Nicaragua, those all over the world. Why is this gospel worth sacrificing everything for? Why is it worth it? Why is the gospel worth it? And I want to give five reasons this morning that come from the scriptures. Five reasons why the gospel is worth sacrificing everything for. I mean, this is a heartbeat of mine personally, and I believe it needs to be the heartbeat of our church. Why? Why are we so much about the gospel? Well, here's the first reason. Here's number one. It is the most important message we could ever share. It is the most important message we can ever share. Now let's look at our text for this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, and this is Paul writing, and I want you to notice the wording that he uses here, starting in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul says this is of first importance. There's a lot of things that are important in the Bible. But there's the one thing that's the most important thing, and Paul says it right here. Here's the most important thing I received, and I'm delivering it to you. That Christ died for our sins... In accordance with the scriptures, he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel. It's a very simple yet profound message that Jesus Christ, and we've looked at this over the past few weeks, Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. They put him in a tomb. He rose again, and this is all in accordance with the scriptures. It's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the most important message that we could ever give, we could ever share. And and it focuses on the death of Christ, the fact that he died in our place. He died to take our sin. He died to take our punishment. And notice what Paul says here. He says, this is the gospel that not only you received, but in which you're taking your stand there at the end of verse 1. It's in which you're taking your stand. You're standing on this gospel. Now, you don't get the original tense of the Greek word there, but but what it is, it's a tense that, that makes it sound like this. When you first believed the gospel, you initially took your stand upon it. You believed it. You took your stand upon it. But... You're continuing into the present to take that stand upon the gospel. And so what Paul's really saying here is that it's not just a message that you believed in and you kind of you just kind of walked on and moved on. It's, it's central, it's foundational to everything that we are, the message of the gospel. It's not just a one-time decision. I checked off the box, I asked Jesus into my heart, I walked an aisle, and now I can go live however I want, and I don't have to worry about the gospel anymore. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying it is a lifestyle that you have embraced Christ. You love Christ. You worship Christ. And I've got to pick this thing up or I'm going to trip over it. Sorry. I don't want to break my leg again. So so gospel-centered is this whole idea that we stand 
in the most important message that any of us could ever hear and ever announce to a lost and dying world, that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, he died a substitutionary death, he rose again, and he calls all people everywhere to bow to him as King Jesus. That's, the most, that's what we're about. If we're not about that as a church, then we might as well pack up and go home. The gospel is central. It's the most important thing. But not only that. I mean, we could just stop right there when Paul says it's the most important thing. It is the most important thing. But number two, the gospel has inherent power. There is inherent power in the gospel. There's power in the gospel. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. A gospel-centered church camps out on the gospel because there's power in the gospel. Now there's a lot of things that we could talk about as a church. And we do that, don't we? We go systematically through the Word of God. We, 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 we go through the whole counsel of God's Word. We don't just camp out in one book. But, there's, but we've always got to keep coming back to the Gospel. There's a lot of tangents that people can get on. For example, we can talk about creationism. And there's nothing wrong with talking about creationism versus evolution. We can talk about end times theories, and I'm not against talking about the end times. We can talk about parenting techniques, or we can talk about marriage, or we can talk about the latest and greatest fad that some televangelist is promoting. We can talk about all those things, but the thing that gets us centered is the gospel because that's the one thing where God has promised there to be power. We often think that we want to move on to deeper things. I just want to move on to deeper things. What's more deep than the gospel? Jerry Bridges has written an excellent book called The Gospel for Real Life. And, and in this, it's something I've been practicing for many years now. It's the whole idea of preaching the gospel to yourself. Now, it doesn't mean that you stand up in the mirror and you get your pulpit and you start preaching to yourself. What it means is on a daily basis, you just remind yourself through prayer, through the word, the truths of the gospel. You let the gospel permeate your thinking. And listen to what he says. And I think this is so true. He says, why do so many believers, not non-believers, believers, why do so many Christians live in quiet desperation? One answer is that we have a truncated view of the gospel, tending to see it as a door we walk through to become Christians. In this view, the gospel is for unbelievers. Once you become a Christian, you don't need it anymore, except to share with people who are still outside the door. What you need to hear instead are interested challenges and how-to discipleship. The reality of present-day Christendom is that most professing Christians actually know very little of the gospel, let alone understand its implications for their day-to-day lives. My perception is that most of them know just enough gospel to get inside the door of the kingdom. They know nothing of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Why do we need to preach the gospel to ourselves? Why is the gospel powerful? Why is it the ballast in our boat? Why is it the bedrock? Because how many of you here are prone to wander? Anybody sin this morning on their way to church? That's not, this is not confession time. Okay. How many of us are prone to wander? What does the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing? Oh, to grace how da- great a debtor daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. 
prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. How many of you have a wandering heart? I have a wandering heart. You have a wandering heart. We're prone to wander. We're prone to go off into two ditches as Christians. Do you realize there are two ditches that you can fall off into as a Christian and the gospel gets you back to the center? What are the two ditches? One ditch is legalism. The other ditch is despair and guilt. Legalism is this whole idea that I have to somehow earn God's approval. I have to be good enough for God to love me. I stack up all my good works as a Christian and we somehow live our lives hoping that we've done enough to earn God's grace and that we get God's brownie points and then we look down upon other people because they're not as good as us and we live in this performance trap of always trying to perform for God so somehow he will love us. We are legalistic. We are moralistic. That's one ditch that we fall into. And there's this inflated view of ourselves thinking that I'm all that. You get prideful, you get inflated, you think that somehow you can do enough to earn God's approval. That's one ditch. It's a sinful ditch. There's another ditch. It's the ditch of despair. The ditch of despair says, well, God couldn't possibly love me. I've done too much bad things. God could never forgive me. You walk around condemned. You walk around guilty. You feel like you've lost your salvation. You walk around defeated. You walk around deflated. You walk around wondering if if you're walking on eggshells in front of God, if God really accepts you. And so you fall into guilt. Whether it's inflated pride or deflated guilt, both of those are tracks that get us off track of wandering. And what the gospel does is it brings us back to the center and it keeps us sane. We need sanity in our Christian lives because we are prone to wander into legalism and we're prone to wander into guilt and despair. And what the power of the gospel does is the gospel comes in power and says, let me get you back to the center. God accepts you based upon the performance of Christ. And even when you fail, you go back to the cross and you find forgiveness time and time again. It's not based upon your performance, it's based upon Christ's performance and your faith in him not in your ability to try to do good. Keeps us sane. So number one, why is the gospel worthy? Why is it worth it? Number one, it's the most important message we could ever share. Number two, it has power. But number three, and this is where it gets beautiful, the gospel is the valuable treasure of the glory of Christ. The valuable treasure of the glory of Christ. Where do you see Christ shine most brightly? In the gospel. So, how do we want to worship Christ most fervently? In the gospel. Listen to what 2 Corinthians says 2 Corinthians 4 4 through 7. In their case, talking about non believers, The God of this world, and that's talking about Satan, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing. Seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Do you realize that we are in a spiritual battle battle with the forces of wickedness? Satan and all of his rulers want to do one thing. 
they want to blind people from seeing the glory of Christ. They want to blind people from seeing the glory of Christ. And God does something miraculous when he comes in the gospel. What does God do? Just like on the day of creation when God said, let there be light. God says, let there be light to a lost dead heart. And he said it to your heart. And and God lets the light of God's glory shine in your heart. Your eyes are open. And for the very first time, you see Jesus. And Jesus is not boring to you. Jesus is not just another guru, another teacher. Jesus becomes beautiful. Jesus becomes your treasure. Jesus becomes exquisitely what you desire for the very first time in your life. And so the value of that treasure becomes glorious when God opens your eyes. And notice what happens. God has entrusted us with this treasure in jars of clay. What's a jar of clay? It's a dumpy little pot that can break easily. What are we? Dumpy little pots that can break easily. Are we that intelligent? Are we that brilliant? Are we that all together? No, we are, we are weak, we are frail, we are clueless, we, we are nothing. But God has said, I want you, weak, frail people, to carry this treasure to the nations so that when the nations bow before King Jesus, they don't look at you as the treasure, they look at Jesus as the treasure and God gets the glory. That his surpassing power is shown through your weakness. That God alone gets it. I mean, what are we really asking God to do as a church? I mean, yes, we can sit here and say, it is to be debt-free in three years. And that's a God-sized task, yes. We want want to be debt-free in three years. We want people to to commit for the next three years, giving above their tithes and their their offerings to to do that. But, but, But beyond that, what's the greater vision? The greater vision as a church is not just so we can be debt-free. The greater vision is the advancement of the gospel to the ends of the earth. What's the end vision of our church? Have you ever thought about the end vision of our church? Here's my end vision of the church, and I think it's biblical. The end vision is that boys and girls and men and women and people all over the globe will have their eyes open to the glory of Christ, that they will bow before the throne and say, Jesus is my king. That's the envision. Whether it's a villager in the Bogotá in India, whether it's an urban dweller in Moscow, whether it's somebody in your own backyard, whoever it is, God has called us to take this gospel that has power, that's the glory of Christ, to the ends of the earth. And so why? Why do we do children's ministry at Emmanuel Baptist Church? Why do we do youth ministry? Why do we do adult ministry? Why do we do worship ministry? Why do we do mission trips to India? Why do we do mission trips to Russia? Why have we done mission trips to Nicaragua? Why do we go to the rescue mission? Why do we do the prison ministry? Why do we do the jail ministry? Why do we do benevolence ministries? Why do we do outreach ministries? Why have we done Christianity Explored? Why have we done all these things? The bottom line is because we want to advance the gospel so that all peoples will see the glory of Christ and love Jesus as their treasure. Now, we can do all of these things without a building. It's, you don't have to have a building to do those things. A building is just a tool that God has given us to do some of those things. And from the very beginning, even before we got into this building, I have said it time and time again from this pulpit and from the other pulpit and other building, this building will never be an idol. We don't want to worship this building. This building could burn down and this church would still exist because the building's not the church. We're the church. 
But God has given us this tool in his grace. God has blessed us, and I think we need to be thankful for what he's given us. I want you to turn in your Bibles just real briefly to John chapter 3. I always come back to this passage of Scripture because I think that John the Baptist says something so profound here that we need to hear from time to time as Christians. And we need to be thankful and we need to be humble in what God has really done. We don't ever, ever want to stand up and take credit for anything that God has done. The very fact that we are here this morning in this building breathing is because God in his grace has allowed it to happen. John 3, 27, and, and you may want to just underline these two verses, please. You will come back to these from time and time again. I come back to these from time and time again. John three twenty seven. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Nothing that we have is what we've produced. It's because God in his grace has given it. You and I cannot receive even one thing unless God chooses to give it. That should make us humble. That should make us dependent. And then go down to verse 30. He, speaking of Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus must get greater. Jesus must get, must get bigger. I must get smaller. So as we think about how God has blessed us as a church, I want us just to think about in thankfulness, in humility, not because we've produced this, but because God in his grace has done this. I want us to think about what God has done in the past four years with this building, the tool of this building. Again, we're not worshiping the building. We're just thanking God in humility that he's giving us a tool. We've had over 35 baptisms. On Wednesday nights, we have over 60 kids running the halls of this place in addition to 50 youth. So that's over 110 children under the age of 18 running around here hearing the gospel. On Sunday mornings, we have over 100 adults in growth groups. We've done harvest festivals and VBS carnivals. And if you take the the cumulative total of the last four VBSs in this building, 394 children have heard the gospel. We've had concerts. We've done Christianity Explored. We've had marriage and women's retreats. We've had weddings and baby showers. We've had funerals and weddings. Our Hispanic church meets in here. We've had potlucks. We've had graduations. We've had birthday parties. We've had special worship services. We've had baby dedications. We've had missions teams from Missouri come and use our showers and stay a week doing missions. We've had fellowship dinners. We've had youth retreats and many, many other things that I can't think of right now. And I don't give you this list to say, look how great Emmanuel is. I'm saying, look at what God has done with this tool over the past four years. Look at how we can have two services on Easter where people can gather and be together. And so I don't want us to be arrogant and I don't want us to be prideful and thinking, look what God, look what we've done for God. No, I want us to be John the Baptist humble and say, we cannot receive even one thing unless God has given it. And God in his grace has given us this tool as a tool for ministry. And we need to be thankful for what he's done. So the gospel, number one, it's the most important message we could ever hear. Number two, it has power. Number three, it's the valuable treasure of Christ. But number four, the gospel is the word of truth. It's the word of truth. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel. What's the word of truth? The gospel of your salvation. 
and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul says the gospel is the word of truth. Colossians 1, 5 through 6. Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and growing. Paul says here the gospel is truth. Now, we live in a culture that doesn't like absolute truth, do we not? Nobody likes to say that there is a truth out there. Now, there may be many things that we can agree or disagree upon, but there's no one absolute truth, is there? Yes, Paul says the word of truth is the gospel. And notice how he words it. He doesn't say the gospel's true. Now, that would, there would have to be wrong with him saying the gospel's true. But there's a lot of things that are true. I'm six foot two. That's true. I was born in Kansas City, Missouri. That's true. Tomorrow night, Louisville's going to beat Michigan. That's true. <laughs> Maybe not. But tomorrow, we get to watch March Madness. That's true. There's a lot of things that are true. But not everything has the sovereignty and the backing of a powerful God behind it to create power. The gospel is truth with a capital T. And Paul is very conscious to say that the gospel is the word of truth. Don't you want to be on the side of truth? Don't you want to be on the side of power? Don't you want to be on the side of the valuable treasure of Christ? Don't you want to be on the side of the greatest message we could ever share? Paul says that's the gospel. It's the greatest thing we could ever share. It's got power. It's the valuable, glorious treasure of Christ. It is truth with a capital T. And then here's number five. The gospel is also Life. Life. 2 Timothy 1, 8-10. Again, Paul says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Now, when did his own purpose and grace happen? He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. That blows my mind. When did it happen? God in his sovereign grace gave us that, that grace before time began. Verse 10, And now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death, abolished death, obliterated death, conquered death, and brought life and immortality to light. How? Through the gospel. The gospel brings life. The gospel conquers death. The empty tomb means that Jesus has conquered death, sin, the devil, and the gospel is a message of life. It's life-giving. Now think about just the glory of the gospel. It's the most important thing we could ever share. It's got power. It's the glorious treasure of Christ. It's the truth, and it's also life. That's worth giving our lives for, the gospel. That's what it is. And that's the message. But there's a, there's a step, uh, there's a next step we need to take. Not only must we believe the truth of the gospel, but it needs to impact how we live our lives. It's one thing just to believe it. It's another thing to let the implications of it impact how we live, our behavior. Let me give you a passage of scripture from Philippians. If you've been going through the 40 days in Philippians, we've already looked at this, but I want you to look at it again. Philippians 1.27. Only let your manner of life. Now, the way Paul uses that term manner of life there in the original language, it means your lifestyle, the way you live. 
your conduct, your behavior, the totality of your life. Let it be what? Worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In other words, what Paul says is he's connecting belief with behavior. Yes, we believe the truth of the gospel, but we've got to live in a way that's worthy of that gospel. So we believe the truth and we live it out. So let me just give you three examples this morning of how the gospel impacts your behavior. Because a lot of times a pastor stands up and says, don't do this. And you walk away and you're like, well, that was a real encouraging message. All he did was just tell me not to do things. Do you realize that the commands in Scripture are rooted in the gospel? Let's talk about sex for a moment. I can stand up here to to young people and I can stand up here to adults and say, God doesn't want you to have premarital sex because it's bad and here's all the STDs you can get and we'll do a video presentation of how bad it is and I'm not against all those things and we can be legalistic and say, don't have premarital sex because God doesn't want you to. And there'd be nothing wrong with what I'm saying there. But notice when Paul talks about premarital sex, when Paul talks about sexual morality, he roots it in the gospel. He makes it more important. He makes it more emphatic. Listen to what he says. In 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20, Paul says this, Flee, run from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And here's the gospel. You are not your own. Why? You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Why do you flee sexual immorality? Because God in his grace has bought you through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ by his blood, and you are no longer your own. You are bought with a price by Christ, and because Christ bought you in the gospel, your motivation for living a life of sexual morality, sexual purity, is not so that you can do a list of do's and don'ts. It's because you're a new person now through the gospel, and Christ has you as his own. That's the motivation to live a holy life, not rules and regulations, but because I'm Christ's. He's bought me. The Holy Spirit lives in me. That's my motivation. All right, let's talk about forgiveness. Well, we could forgive each other begrudgingly, couldn't we? Well, the Bible says I've got to forgive, so I might as well forgive you. Don't really want to. My heart's not really in it, but I know it's what I'm supposed to do as a Christian, so let me just forgive you. Anybody excited about that type of forgiveness? Well, you're forgiving, right? And, and almost every other world belief system has some type of golden rule, don't they? I mean, Buddhism has a golden rule. Islam has a golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's, that's general morality. But Jesus makes it different. The gospel makes it different. Why do we forgive each other? Do we forgive each other because it's just because we've got to do it? Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So what's the motivation there? You forgive because you've been forgiven. And when you stop and realize how much you've been forgiven and how much Christ has taken your sin and how much Christ has taken your shame, it motivates you to say, you know what, I've been gratefully forgiven. I'm going to forgive you because of what Christ has done for me. Not because I have to, but because I want to, because Christ has been so gracious with me. All right, let's talk about marriage. I'm just going to step on some toes. Marriage, sex, forgiveness, might as well just, you know, bat three here. Do we just love our husbands? Do we love our wives because she's so hot? Or she's not so hot? 
Or do we just love our wives because she serves us, she's our maid, and she gives us our every desire? I love my wife when she doesn't have wrinkles and she looks good. I love my wife. Do we love our wives with conditions? Do we love our wives because, yeah, that's kind of what a husband's supposed to do. How do why do we love our wives, husbands? Because of her? Well, yes, but ultimately we love our wives because of Christ's love for us. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So husbands, why do we love our wives? Because Jesus loved us that way. Jesus loves the church that way. And we look at Christ's love for the church. We emulate that and we get the power to love our wives that way. And when she fails us as she will, we forgive her because how many times has we at the church failed Jesus? Does Jesus stop loving us just because we fail him? No. Jesus sticks with us through thick and thin because he's bought us. Husbands, we love our wives that same way, rooted in the gospel. Now, this should be very obvious. But finally, there's nothing more precious than the gospel. Nothing more precious than the gospel. Listen to how Paul talks about his passion. This is Paul's mission statement from the book of Acts. Acts 20, 24. I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. What is that? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You hear Paul's passion there? Paul's basically saying this. You know, my life would be worthless. My life would be meaningless. There would be nothing in my life worth living if I didn't finish the course, if I didn't finish, if I didn't finish the task, if I didn't end well. And what's the one desire I have? The one thing that, that burdens me, the one thing that's my passion, the one thing that keeps me going, the one thing that's, that's always on my radar screen. What does Paul say? It's to testify, to give testimony to, to tell, to share what? The gospel of grace. That was Paul's heartbeat. Everything comes back to the gospel. Notice what he says. It's the gospel of what? grace. The gospel of grace. Do we truly understand grace? What's grace? Bottom line is that you and I deserve to be obliterated off the planet because of God's holiness. God is a holy God and he has every right to do with us what he will. But God has chosen not to do that in Christ through the cross so that we can receive what we would never have gotten ourselves grace. God is not obligated to give it. God does not owe it. We cannot earn it. We do not deserve it, but God gives it to us joyfully, liberally, extravagantly through Christ, the gospel of grace. So as we move forward as a church, the theme is advancing the gospel. It's not so much about paying down the debt on a building. Yes, that's what it's about. But ultimately, it's about the gospel. What are we as a church all about? We are about the gospel. So, on April 28th, I'm going to invite you to come to our celebration service at NJC. And I'm going to ask you to pray. That's all I'm doing this morning is just pray. So you may ask, well, what's the need? Sean's asking us to commit above and beyond our tithes and offerings. Yes, we want you to continue to give your tithes and offerings because your tithes and offerings go for the general budget of the church. 
We have a general operating budget that does things like missions. It does children's ministry. It does youth ministry. All the things that this church does to advance the gospel comes through the normal tithes and offerings. Not, we don't take money from the building fund to go, or we don't use money from the general budget to pay down the building. That comes from a separate fund. And we want to be able to have the money freed up in our general budget to continue doing what God's called us to do. So what's the need? What's the need? Through the New Mexico Foundation, the Church Finance Corporation, our outstanding loan on this, the outstanding mortgage on this building is $1.5 million. It's $1.5 million. Our monthly payment is $10,000. Our mortgage is a $10,000 a month payment. Now, we have a three-year adjustable rate mortgage at 6%, so that could change after three years. It could go higher, it could go lower. But for right now, it's $10,000 a month. And that $10,000 a month, does not, we do not pay that out of our operating budget. It comes currently right now through those that are still continuing to give to Building for the Harvest 2, even though that officially ended. And so what I'm asking you to do is to pray specifically about how God would lead in your life. Now here's my dream. And some of you may say, Sean, you're crazy, and I know I am. Here, here's the dream I have. And I know it's a pipe dream, and I know it's a, it's a big, hairy, audacious goal. But here's my dream. I would love to see us be debt-free in three years, to have no debt in three years. Now, you may say, that's $1.5 million. That's a hunk of change. I understand that. And I understand that in the first building for the harvest and in the second building for the harvest that stretched over a six-and-a-half-year period of time, we raised a little over a million. So I'm asking us to think about $1.5 million in a three-year time frame. Now, God may or may not do that. I'm not sure, but I think it's great to have a dream. And here's the issue. If God is calling us to do that, it's going to take commitment it's going to take obedience. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take something outside of ourselves. It's going to take the gospel. Let me just tell you that I've been in a building campaign since 2000. 13 years now. Don and I, this, is our, this will be our fifth one. Of paying above and beyond our tithes to a, to a capital fundraising campaign. Do Don and I like it? Has it gotten laborious over the past 13 years? Well, there's times where we struggled and there's times where we, we've looked at each other and like, what did we sign up for? Why do we always go to churches that are building buildings? Maybe we should just go somewhere where they, you know, they pay their bill. No, I'm just saying. That's not what I'm saying. Don't, don't hear me wrong there. There's no intention of us going anywhere. God has called us to stay here. But the point is, it takes an extra measure of faith and grace and power. And so when we start on this journey... We want it to be rooted in the power of the gospel because that's what we're about, advancing the gospel. And so I know that there's, there's past baggage. I know there's past issues. I know it didn't turn out the way we wanted it to. There was, there was legal issues and a lot of things that are in the past, and I understand that. And if you have questions or you want to come talk to me or the elders, we understand that and we want to be open to that. But, but I would just say this. Don't let the baggage from the past prevents you from praying about how God would have you participate in the future. And, and so I'm just going to ask you at this point just to pray. All, if, if you seriously pray about it, 
and you seriously are on your face and on your, on your knees before God, and you're asking his direction, he will give it to you. And God may say to you, this is what I want you to do. I want you to give this amount of money. God may say, I don't want you to participate. I'm not God. I can't tell you what to do. But what I can encourage you to do is to pray and seek the face of the Lord. And as a church, over the next four weeks, I want us to be praying and asking God, God, what would you have me to do in this journey? I don't, I don't necessarily want to compare myself to another person or, 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 or this or that. What are you calling me to do? And it all comes back to the gospel. Do I see the envision of advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth for the glory of Christ's name so that boys and girls and men and women from all tribes, tongues, and nations will be standing there before the throne praising King Jesus and seeing him as glorious and beautiful? That's the envision. That's what we're living for as a church. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And let's start that process. You've heard about the gospel this morning. You've heard about the need of our church this morning. You know that we're going into a three-year capital fundraising campaign. You know that in a few weeks we're going to go over to NJC. I'm not hiding this from you. We know we're doing this. It's, it's a reality. It's what God's called us to do at this time, at this place, at this juncture. And so what we need to be about is prayer. So I'm going to ask you just to spend some time in silent prayer. And so two prayers this morning. Number one, if you're here this morning and, and you've never really heard about this gospel, you've never heard about the glory of Christ and you've never really understood what it means to have this relationship with Christ and the gospel, today I, I simply just want to invite you to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation to ask him to forgive you of your sins, to repent of those sins and turn and trust in Christ and spend time in prayer right now asking him to open your eyes to give you the glory of Christ in the gospel. The second prayer for us this morning is, is those of us that are saved, that we would never lose sight of the glory of the gospel and that we would begin to ask, how is God leading me to be a part of this three-year journey in advancing the gospel? And you may have no clue what God's doing or what God's saying, but this is just the introductory time to just lay your heart open before God and just be in prayer. So let's just spend some time in prayer this morning. Ask God to search our hearts to be obedient to whatever he calls us to do. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the gospel. I'm thankful, Lord Jesus, the gospel has power. There's inherent power in the gospel. I'm thankful that the gospel is the word of truth. I'm thankful that in the gospel there's life. I'm thankful that there's nothing more precious than the gospel. Lord, I thank you that you've called us as a church to advance the gospel. I thank you for the privileges we've had of going to places like Nicaragua and going to India and getting ready to go to Moscow and and going to the rescue mission and going into the prisons and going into the jails and going into the neighborhoods and doing all the things that you've called us to do to advance the gospel. Lord, that's what we want to be about as a church. And we want to continue to do that in even greater ways than maybe what we're doing now. Maybe you have something on the horizon for us to do that's, that's big and great that right now we just don't have financially the ability to do because we're, we need to pay down the debt. So Lord, just show us how we would each participate in this. Let us seek your face. Let us pray, prayerfully consider over the next few weeks how you would have us participate. Lord Jesus, would you do all things for your glory? and for the advancement of your gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.